0: Drone Tree, you're a historian and you have written and read around uh, John Henry Newman for many years. There's good news today that he is soon going to be declared a saint. Just remind us of the process that led to that.
1: Well, Newman's cause has been was begun quite a while ago and it got an extra impetus during the pontificate of Pope Benedict XVI because he had a long-standing devotion to Newman. In fact, he credited Newman, on more than one occasion, with having both helped him personally but also given the church a sense of history as a what they call a theological locus, seeing history as being a source and a font of content worthy of theological reflection. That wasn't the tendency in Catholic theology or philosophy to incorporate the historical, the sense of things developing over time, but it had become the mainstay of Newman's own personal theology. And Pope Benedict wanted himself personally to do the beatification. So he did so during his 2010 visit to Britain in Birmingham.
0: Just remind people who John Henry Newman was, a potted biography. A lot of people might know the hymn Lead Kindly Light that he wrote the words to, but he's a very substantial figure in the whole Catholic tradition.
1: He is. His life traverses the 19th century almost perfectly. He was born in 1801, he died in 1890. So that's pretty well the whole of the period from the end of the revolutionary era to the beginning of modernity with the 20th century. He was effectively an evangelical Protestant for his earlier years. But during his 20s, when he began to take things more seriously, he moved very much towards what they call a high church Anglican position. He was very influenced by a lot of what they call the Anglican divines of the 17th and 18th century, and they themselves had a strong sense of the importance of the early church in determining what constituted legitimate Orthodox Christianity. He followed that and it was in much of his early work, much of his sermonising was around the themes that were suggested by that tradition. But it took him to a place he never expected to go, and that was towards the idea that it was Rome rather than Canterbury that was the legitimate development of the early church. That was so incredibly countercultural in the Britain of his time that I think... When we look at him as a potential saint, and he's due to be canonised possibly even as soon as this coming autumn, it's because not just of the fact that he was such an intellectual giant, but because he showed such gigantic courage, heroism in following through what was exceedingly difficult at a personal and relational and institutional sense.
0: You mean when he converted to Catholicism? In
1: 1845 he became a Catholic and effectively wrote himself out of the larger story that he had been very much a part of in the Anglican Church in Britain.
0: He has written an awful lot, as you have said, and from that you get a sense not only of that huge intellect and that understanding of history that he had and its importance in the tradition of the Church, he was also a deeply spiritual man.
1: He was extraordinarily spiritual. In some sense, the evangelical instinct that he had, even as a teenager, never left him right through his Catholic years. He then had this profound kind of instinctual sense that there were just two great realities that could not be denied, himself and God, or rather God and himself. But that stays throughout as a kind of leitmotif of his entire life. When he comes to look at the development of the church, he looks at it very much in terms of a kind of a psychological development of the church as a kind of person, and indeed as the person of Christ, but as a human person who grows cognitively, grows developmentally, emotionally, and every other way. It's like the church is this one great person before God, learning to become more Godlike, And then when he comes later in his life to deal with the other greatest of his themes, conscience, again, we're left with this Dramatically spiritualized, theological, but deeply psychological sense of one person before God being attentive to a voice that makes the difference and that tells him that there is something, there is a set of values that lies outside himself, which he cannot account for simply by looking internally.
0: You know, I'm reminded when you were speaking there of, first of all, let's take the whole organic nature of things developing. That was very important for him and different from a, an understanding, maybe a more static notion of who we are and who the church is.
1: Yeah, very much the dominant sort of thought pattern in the 19th century was that everything about the church was unchangeable. There was a dramatic emphasis on the transcendental, the supra-historical, the idea of the grand unchanging absolute fact of God and God's things. And for Newman, this was problematic because it made no accommodation for the ordinary changes which occur in the course of church history. I mean, Newman found himself saying we must start with the church as a fact of history and we've got to account for it, not explain it away. We have to make sense of the fact that there was no clear Christological doctrine for 300 years after Christ's death. There was no clear... Trinitarian doctrine, no clear doctrine that said Father, Son, and Spirit are consubstantial until nearly 400 years after Christ's death. Marian doctrines took longer still. So too did penitential traditions, the structure of the sacraments, all of these things. How do we make provision for a church that is able to change in these respects and in other respects, sometimes dramatically? How do we do so without having a kind of a theory? that accommodates the historical and does not try to rest everything on the unchangeable.
0: Now, that's interesting because today Newman is in the spotlight again, and not just for being made a saint, but he's been appropriated by people on both sides of what might be called the very conservative side of the Catholic Church and the more liberal side. Can you explain that to us?
1: Yeah, it's a a curious phenomenon because we now have both people who, sadly, are often at each other's throats in the church these days. Pope Francis's conservative critics and Pope Francis's progressive defenders, I suppose. It's a little bit of a trite division, but it holds. They're both very pleased to hear that Newman is to become a saint later on this year. Each of them will invoke the same notion in Newman in particular, that is, his theory of the development of doctrine, but they have two very different takes on it. For the Conservatives, Newman's understanding of the development of doctrine is that a doctrine may only develop in a way that's completely internally, organically consistent. The way an acorn may only become an oak tree, it can't do anything else, it can't turn into some other kind of creature. An infant will become a, a man or a woman according to its kind. And that there is this necessary progressive development that absolutely limits the manner and the direction in which the development take place. For the more progressive people, Newman's understanding of development is more ample, is more subtle and more complex than that allows. And it is true that Newman does take images of strict organic development, as an explanation or as a kind of model of dogmatic development in the church. He does take instances of infants and acorns and things, largely from the early church fathers. But he adds to that, again, in keeping with what I said about him earlier, the idea of a psychological development. The infant who becomes the man or the woman doesn't just change in the length of their limbs or in their girth or other accidentals, They also change in their understanding of the world around them. They come up with simplistic understandings when they're young. The understanding deepens later. They correct older misunderstandings. They go down blind alleys. They correct themselves. They experiment with one way of looking at things. They are exposed to outside ideas. They appropriate them or assimilate them, to use Newman's word. And that has its own effect. And all of this, which may look, as Newman is very clear in his essay on development, which may look like it is wayward, may look like it is a little bit, let's say, out of control. If one looks at it closely, one could see that underlying it all, there is what he calls a preservation of type, that one could even become, and he puts this into terms of, say, British politics in the 19th century, one could be a a Whig-eyed liberal, and then toy with being a Peelite Tory, and then go back or take a third stance. But underneath it all, there's what he calls a large consistency, a continuity of value or of type. Newman is clear that what he sees as the sources of corruption in religion is the people who stay faithful in every last detail to what they have received, but fail to move with the developments in the teachings. And this, for him, is part of his way of giving an account for why the Anglicanism that he had inherited, which had the appearance of being more faithful to the early church than Catholicism, which had added a whole set of uh, ideas of ecclesial authority, of cult of the saints, of Mariology, and all kinds of things, it would appear, and it was the kind of the brave claim of the high Anglicans of Newman's time. That they were the ones who lay closest to the church of the Apostolic Fathers and of the the pre-Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers, East and West. But Newman said, ah, but you failed to move with the development. And that's why Rome, for Newman, is not the church that looked most like the church immediately after the time of Christ, but it's the church which looked most like the church that came immediately after the time of Christ should look after 1,800 years of development, of coming into contact with outside systems, with having internal conflict, with meeting new systems of philosophy and theology and toying with one idea after the other and having rituals emerge and then rituals disappear. All kinds of things. This messier, more unpredictable and scintillating development is what Newman has in mind.
0: Tell me for you then, as a historian and as somebody very interested in matters of faith, what that means concretely today that Newman is offering, because we see Pope Francis is under fire very much from an alt-right who are very nervous and, and vitriolic about the changes he's brought, and say even in relation to the death penalty and saying that he is changing church doctrine and is an almost schism or heresy.
1: Yeah, I I won't take any of the particular instances. They're, They're there for sure. There's the question of access to the Eucharist for divorcees. And as you say, there's capital punishment and all these other things. And when they come up... Pope Francis himself or people who are defending him will invoke the development of doctrine, Newman's idea of the development of doctrine. What tends to happen then is that the conservative critics will say, aha, you want to talk about Newman and the development of doctrine. Don't you know that Newman is all about the development of doctrine has to happen within a tight conservative frame? Now, I contest that. I think this is to misunderstand Newman entirely, and it's to impose a very different spirit, a very kind of anti-historical or at least ahistorical spirit, onto what Newman is talking about. It's kind of effectively a kind of a scholastic, a, th- a, a Thomistic or scholastic framework is superimposed onto what Newman is doing, and it doesn't fit. I think one way of looking at what's at the the tension that's that is evident in the church at the moment is to look at the second vatican council because this really is the watershed event. Newman is often seen as being and fact Pope Paul VI referred to him as being a kind of a father of the council. The difference which Newman made to the new theologians of the 20th century, Yves Congar, Henri de Lubac, Jean Daniélou, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, all these the greats of the 20th century, the fact that Newman gave them this historicist approach to understanding Christian doctrine and its development. That fed into the Council and it made the Council doubly attentive. One, two, back to its sources, the ressourcement, the return to the sources, back to Scripture and the early tradition of the church, but also the second one, which came under the rubric of aggiornamento, uh, uh, being attentive to one's own time, to staying up to date. You're looking in two directions at once and you're holding this, a kind of a creative tension to keep these two things together, the earliest pristine spirit of the church and the concrete reality that's in front of you. The tendency, and Newman had identified this as a tendency in the Anglicans that he left behind when he joined the church in 1845, the tendency is to give foreground prioritisation to antiquity. We must always refer everything back to the past. And Newman was saying this is the failure, the failure to recognise where development might bring you, the failure to respond to the concrete reality that you're facing. I happen to think that it's Francis and it's Francis's defenders who are right in their way of invoking Newman and Newman's development of doctrine. I think that Newman would very much be along the side that Francis is with regard to holding these two very different sort of frames of value together, what we have received and what we are facing. That's what brought Newman into the Church, and it's very much what the Second Vatican Council was doing. But nowadays, what we've had is, sadly, a great number of the conservatives in the Church who were broadly... In favour of the Second Vatican Council, so long as it was what they saw as being its excesses were restrained by conservative popes, now with Francis have said, oh, we should have seen it all along. The problem was the council itself. What we must do is try to get the council negatived and go back to the time before the council was there. And this is, I think, the great error of antiquarianism. This is the failure to pay due attention to the God-given, concrete historical moment that one lives in.
0: To conclude, are you happy that he is going to be made a saint and that this man did give so much? I mean, he spoke beautifully about change. To grow is to change and to change often is to become perfect. Is that correct? You mentioned conscience, the importance that he put on conscience, and that would have influenced documents in the council, Dignitatis Humanae and things like that. What's your summary of this man that you've written and read about for so many years?
1: I think I'll go back to where I started, which is to say that canonization is about personal holiness. And Newman is the intellectual giant that, that I've been describing but again what underlies all that and what what uh, could give animates all of what he did what he said with regard to development education too i've left that out but that's very important his sense of of kind of an integrated intellectual life very important how important it is for catholics his founding of the catholic university in ireland is one instance various efforts to try to get catholics to engage with oxford is another then as you say conscience and other matters of of that kind What animated his entering into any of these things was a profoundly selfless attention to the values that were important, whether he found them easy to support or not. They needed to be pursued and they needed to be revered. And... What I I like about him, and I'm going to be a little bit perverse here, what I like about him in particular, too, is that he was a very sensitive man, oversensitive at times. There's no doubt about it. You cannot read the life of Newman. You cannot see the complications in Newman's personal relations without seeing how much he smarts under the lash, a phrase he uses more than once himself, you know, of people disregarding him or people taking him up the wrong way, which they often did because he was very much more subtle than many of his detractors. But uh, it hurt him not. But also he was hurt. People talking behind his back, having his works dilated to Rome on suspicion of heresy, in one case by a bishop who later came back crawling to him, begging him to come with him as a a paritius to the First Vatican Council, which he turned down. But over and over again, people, even if he tried to hold out the hand of friendship, sometimes he got uh, his wrist slapped and uh, it always hurt. And I think it was a deep, deep personal sensitivity. Friendship for him was an all-important matter. And this is very different from the highly intellectual Newman we're talking about because he took, as his motto, he had the phrase, core ad core loquitur, one heart talks to another heart and this is what he saw his whole life is doing when he writes about the development of the church when he writes about education when he writes his enormous private correspondence staggeringly large private correspondence uh, people writing to him with all kinds of anxieties and he replies with such beautiful elegance to them all when he writes about all of these things he sees himself all the time as writing one heart to another that i think is really the proper grounds for his canonization